Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. I'm joined today by Amanda Scott. Amanda is a veterinarian, an author, a shamanic teacher, and a climate crisis activist. You've been getting to know Amanda through these podcasts, and I hope you value her input as much as I do. We recorded this conversation on March 29th. Like everyone else, the coronavirus was absolutely first and foremost on our minds. It's astounding, just absolutely astounding, how much the world had changed in the short span of time since we had last talked. I always value Manda's perspective, so I was really looking forward to this opportunity to spend some time with her. We began with a simple question. How's life? My goodness, it's different from when we last spoke. When we last spoke. Oh. So I, of course, live in New York State, not in the city, but I live in New York. And New York right now is the hardest hit of all the states in the U.S. And they're... And do we know why that is? Most of it is hitting down in the city. So the, the largest number of cases are in the city. And every day, Governor Cuomo has been giving press briefings. And he's doing just a superb job. I have really enjoyed listening to him. He's a very good presenter. So just on the level of watching somebody who's very good at presenting, it's worth watching. And Hmm. he comes across as in such a human way of really caring about people. And, you know, he's been, I think this is his third term as governor, and there are lots of different opinions and there are times when you dislike him intensely, and other times, like when when he um, <laughs> he vetoed all frac- fracking in the state, I thought, yes, you've just gone up a notch. And then there are other things where you <laughs> yeah. think, oh. <laughs> but right now, he is doing just mm-hmm. a superb job. And what he has said is there, he he attributes it to two things. One is the New York City. It's just so densely packed, and you can't get away from one right. another. So it's very densely packed, and there's a lot of travel into and out of New York City. So it's a major hub for people coming in from Europe. There certainly are many international visitors from China and so on. And so the opportunity for the virus to spread there was certainly present. And it's very densely packed. So, yeah. for whatever yeah. reason, whether there's you know if there's some other attributing factor, I don't know. But for whatever reason, they now they're you know they've been working really hard. The this term that we're all learning, flatten the curve. So, uh, yes. schools are closed throughout the state, and that's I think throughout the country most of the schools are closed. Travel is restricted. All non-essential jobs are restricted. For horse people, 
if you have your horses in a public barn, you can't go visit them. I would be so stressed over that. Mm. But there are stress points mm. for everybody. And I think what this brings us to is actually a great dress rehearsal. So far, and, and mm. I brought up yeah. Homo because he really has been speaking to our better selves. And today when I listened, they, they are working so hard to increase the number of hospital beds and to get ventilators because the numbers are going up. And even if they get to flatten the curve, they know, they know the numbers are going up and they want to be prepared. Well, it's no good getting extra yeah. hospital beds if you don't have staff. You know, that's, that's been something that I've been... Yes, quite. Right. And, that's and you can't train them up overnight. Over and they talk about, you know, we need whatever the numbers are and numbers of beds. And I think, well, that's great. So you're lying in bed, but there's nobody to take care of you. Well, they've had, to, as of today, they had 70,000 health workers volunteer to come back to work. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we had that over here. Yes, yeah. who are in the at-risk. Yes. That's just one, one instance of it, of we are rising to our better selves. And this is a dress rehearsal for other things that are coming. Right now, everyone's focus is on the coronavirus. If you talk about climate change, you see people just shut down. It's like, we can't think about that. We don't want to think about that. You know, that's off in the distance. This is impacting us now. And I get that. That's fair. But Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz has given some great talks on extinction and on resurgence. And he talks about when you're in a situation where you're under stress, you will start to reverse back to previously learned behaviors, to things that either you have done in the past right. or you have seen modeled in the past. And this is where I think we have a real opportunity to create for the future. Yeah. So he tells the story of he was driving, actually he was driving to Tai Chi class with his, his young son, who I think was like probably six or seven at the time. And they had a flat tire on one of the expressways. And your first reaction when you have something like that happen is you want to, you know, get all angry and rough, rough, rough and, and, and start swearing or blaming somebody or, you know, behaving badly, having a grown-up temper tantrum. And Jesus caught himself and he said, no, you know, I, I, mm. I mustn't do that because however I behave now, is creating the repertoire for how my son will handle similar situations where there's some form of a crisis. Mm. And so instead of getting upset and doing what his first reaction led him, wanted him to do, it was so tempting to fall into, he very calmly you know, got the car to the side of the road where it was safe, and he and his son had a lesson in learning how to replace a tire. Yeah. And that was the behavior that his son will carry forward. Yeah. And Definitely. we have that opportunity to really be mindful 
of in this crisis, which is so extreme and which is unlike anything most of us have ever experienced, well, there will be other things coming at us. The freight train is coming at us in terms yes. of climate change. Yeah. So what is the repertoire that we create for ourselves now yeah. that will help us later? And, and I think what we're finding around the world, really, is that there's the behaviours of governments, which tend to be little late and confused and confusing. And we have the behaviours of people in their communities, which on the whole, with, with you know, everybody's fighting over toilet roll. Yes, that's stupid. But but mostly over here, now we're in lockdown, communities have set up WhatsApp groups. They are organising, they're teaching the kids at home, they're bringing in elderly people in the community who some of them haven't ever spoken to at all. And now they're talking online because, because this is bringing out the best in ordinary people at the same time as it's bringing out the worst in those who we've elected to make decisions for us. And I think that's a very interesting dichotomy. And I think that we nobody knows how this is going to play out. There's a really interesting team, the Flow Genome Project, Jamie Vile, Jordan Hall and Daniel Schmachtenberger. And they released something back in December, I think, so before this kicked off, um, to the effect that they, they were monitoring self-organizing connectivity around the world. And at that point, we were already two orders of magnitude more connected than any other time in human history, which is to say any other time in the history of consciousness in the evolution of this planet. And and that ordinary self-organizing networks were arising that were more connected than any of the official news networks, which up until then had been the high point of connectivity. And that was in December. And I don't know about you, but my email has just gone wild the last couple of weeks with with people offering connection and free courses. And here's a way to connect so that we don't have to, you know, here's a free yoga class. Come and join it online. And and everything from, you know, dentists offering free dental healthcare ideas or people offering to help teach your kids or let's let's do music online. It's gone crazy. And so if we were already two orders of magnitude more connected than we had ever been before, then we are many, many more orders of magnitude now. And this has, we, we are now in the territory of hypercomplexity and self-organizing systems, and we don't know where it's going to go. And I think that's so interesting. And potentially, you know, in amongst the horror, and, and we just lost our first hospital consultant in Britain today to the virus. He was 55 years old. He was an ENT surgeon. And and things are bad. And there, are, I have a friend whose mother is in palliative care and end of life care, and they've been banned from going to see her. Yes, yes. There's horrendous things are happening. And, and people have, you know, lots of us have lost all our income. And the government is very keen to prop up big companies and, and considerably less keen to prop up ordinary people. Um, and yet we, we are seeing things changing in ways that when we said we need to do this for climate change, we were told it was impossible. And what we're discovering is it's not impossible. We don't know what the outcome will be, but it's not impossible. So I think it's a it's a very interesting time. I've been reading Charles Eisenstein, who's always extraordinarily 
thorough and interesting. And, and he's pointing out that authoritarian, totalitarian controls almost everywhere around the world have been stepped up monumentally. And we've just gone, oh, yeah, OK, coronavirus. And we we don't know, you know, particularly in the US, the Patriot Act was passed the last time there was a big national crisis and, right. and and not unpassed at any point. We've we've just passed we our government just passed legislation that will now it, it effectively means that Extinction Rebellion Rebellion is dead because now it is illegal to gather for any reason. And they can arrest you and hold you on suspicion of having a virus for as long as they like. Um, and they're sending drones, drones around the streets to check that people are actually staying home. You know, this level, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, drones, yeah, drones, drones with loudspeakers telling people to get off the streets in the cities. Mind you, you know, because this time last week, when they'd said, you really need to stay home, the National Park at Snowdonia had its biggest visitor numbers of all time. Okay. And the, and the following day, Matlock in Derbyshire had its biggest visitor numbers of all time. It was a nice sunny weekend and everybody who had a car went to the, the queues, the pictures of, of and and so, you know, people were not doing themselves any favours. Um, and, and up to a point, you know, I do want everyone to stay home. I, in this, I, I woke up this time last week and thought, you know, suddenly I've got a lot of free time. I could get a puppy, that puppy I've been thinking of, but haven't really had time to bring on. I'm I'm going to have a lot of time. And Everyone else in the country had the same idea. I phoned up a lady. There was a very nice lurcher <laughs> that I noticed. I phoned up at quarter past eight. It had gone on at five to eight. She'd had a hundred phone calls in the interim and it wow. had gone within three minutes. And somebody came to pick it up, which, you know, technically was an extremely stupid thing to do. Although if I had phoned in time, I would probably <laughs> have gone to pick it up too. Um, so, so, you know, there's a lot of people doing things that are, are frankly, they don't understand epidemiology, but also... You know, I've I've got. You have to two go to the grocery store still. You have to go to the grocery store. We have pictures of people in London, essential people packed because they've reduced the number of tube trains. So those who do need them are packing in like sardines. And I have another friend, a very very bright woman who's who's a virologist who's just been called in to help with this. And she and her husband both work in pretty high intensity. She's in a lab, he's in a publishing house, and they both watch this virus go through their office and, and hit half of the people, and the other half have apparently not been touched. And so, you know, it is highly contagious, but we don't really know the actual numbers. So, so I'm, you know, I'm not suggesting that, that anybody is overreacting. We need, we need to be doing what we're doing, but I think it's going to be very, very interesting when it has ended. And I also think... 50 million people die of starvation every year. That's considerably more than is likely to die from the current figures of coronavirus. And and it's not that we don't have the food, it's that we have a system that chooses not to distribute it properly. You know, there are millions of people are going to die from the impact of climate change. And at the moment, we're still living in a world where half of the world doesn't even want to know it's happening. So I think you know, it's one of those things where this is a a labelable thing and it's come out of nowhere and it was yes. highly predictable and predicted. I, I gather, I haven't watched it, but Bill Gates two years ago did a TED talk which has had nearly 20 million views saying exactly this. 
This has um, been predicted for for years. Okay. You know, you and, didn't know exactly what the the virus was going to be, no, but but we knew it was it, coming. It, we knew it was coming. We knew that that this was a very real possibility. That's why SARS was watched. That's why the H1N1 was watched. That's why Ebola. Every time there's an outbreak, the world holds its breath. Yeah. But mostly, I think, in, in all of the wargaming that my my medical friends have done, the most likely was a respiratory virus. And in your country and mine, in both cases, when they wargame, the first thing they do is say, we need to stockpile ventilators. And they have been routinely ignored. Although I, I read an interesting article the other day saying that in the US, uh, just before Trump canned the pandemic center, you, you he there was a center for pandemic preparedness and, and it was canceled yes. just before they had done their final war game of what happens in respiratory virus. And by five months in, they had nationalized the health service because that was the only thing to do. Yes. And I'm thinking, well, this is, you know, we're now two weeks in. This is, if if that were to happen in, let's say, April, May, June, July, August, what impact would that have on your general election? Because actually what we're seeing now is that if you don't have adults in the room when something like this hits, it's going to be much worse than if you do have adults in the room. It sounds like your governor is one of the adults in the room. Yes, and And definitely. your president and our prime minister are not. And it would be really nice to think that that perhaps the adults might be elected next time. But yeah, I'd throw that out as a oh, wild idea. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, they better be because otherwise we are definitely going to be in trouble yeah because this is no that's the thing the next big thing is antibiotic resistance we've been warned about that a lot and the, and you know the thing about a virus is it it does create immunity we don't know how much we don't know how long it'll last but and, and the whole herd immunity thing is is obviously insane but you know it will go through we don't still have the black plague or bubonic plague or typhoid you know, rearing through everybody because they pass through and you develop a level of resistance and, and they become kind of more chronic than acute. But antibiotic resistance, that's that's much harder to deal with. And, yes. and the same people who've been saying, please, we're going to have a pandemic, you need to be prepared, are saying, really, guys, you need to think about this. Um, and we don't because we can't get our heads around it. So, yeah. No, and that whole question of why we can't, why why we are so reluctant to even consider some of these things. But now we're seeing that they can become a reality. And yes. maybe that will that will help a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think yeah. And and then we're back to look guys. I I I was in one of the very many Zoom calls that have arisen in the last couple of weeks and this was a kind of political economic Zoom call. And on the call was a woman called Molly Scott Cato, who used to be the member for the European Parliament for the Southwest. She's an economist. She's very bright. And she said that in her economic circles, that there was a metaphor, which was that changing over the existing fossil fuel based economy to what we would need so that we don't create catastrophic climate change would be like taking a Boeing 747 at maximum height and maximum speed over the Atlantic and changing it into a helicopter in midair. 
That's quite an image. Yeah, which basically means it's going to fall out of this. It's going to fall out of the sky. It's not going to happen. You can't do it without it crashing. And she said, "But, but now the Boeing seven four seven is landing. We've fallen out of the sky. Well, we're landing it. It's not quite fallen, but it's landing. Right. We could do yeah. this now. And right. and I think if so, so I'm working very hard with accidental gods and the various networks to say we don't need to know exactly where we're going. Because neoliberal capitalism didn't know exactly where it was going. It knew the tools by which it wanted to get there. Yes. Which was free market. Let's let's assume just you know, libertarian free marketism mm-hmm. has got us to where we are. So everyone says, you know, well, where does that get us? I, I don't know exactly where regenerative economics would get us, but I have a pretty good clue of what it would look like um, to to start off. And if enough of us can have the conversations, the the intrinsic, remembering the intrinsic, extrinsic yep. um, polarities in Tom Crompton's Common Cause Foundation model of frames, yes. have those conversations and say, you know, to our neighbours, okay, we're not enjoying not being able to go see our horses, but are you enjoying not having to work flat out nine to five, five days a week to enrich other people when your life has not really improved since pff, 1979? Right. Um, because you're actually getting to know your own yes. children and and your that's a remarkable thing. and your neighbors and we're building community and, and we're doing the things that we always said were what we needed to do and yeah. do you really want to throw that away and go back to the rat race because we don't have to sleepwalk back to business as usual we really don't and if enough of us can say that then it becomes the new reality and i think it's so important yeah it's when we say let's get back to normal, is that really what you want? Is to get back? And the longer to what we have, the longer we're away from what we had, the more it will seem toxic in retrospect. Yes. And then the new normal arises, yes. and it, we don't want the new normal to arise where everyone is under effective house arrest. That's not good. There's got to be a balance because actually we spent most of the afternoon here clearing the polytunnel, building more raised beds, and filling them because. Nobody's picking the early produce here. The asparagus is rotting in the fields, partly because of the self-induced insanity of Brexit, because it, it was picked by seasonal workers from, from Eastern Europe. But but even without Brexit, they wouldn't be allowed to come now. So it's it's not being picked, actually. Wow. So that's, that's not considered essential? No. Uh, wow. I think, well, it might be, so- but they're not allowed to fly. They can't get here, and the local people don't want. People to. are not don't want to do that because they haven't done it ever. Okay. I mean, you haven't done it within living memory. So why would they do it now? Um, they're all enjoying having a holiday from work. The ones who are not actually essential. And so I think come the autumn, there's you know the fights over toilet rolls are going to look like a happy memory if we don't start actually growing stuff that we can actually eat about now. So there's yeah. there's a balance between everybody being communitarian and guys, you know, window boxes, do whatever it takes, start growing things that you can eat. Yeah, in, when you, in terms of creating your own reality and creating a good reality, a better reality, and it's it's process, it's process over outcome always. Yeah, it's in training. You want to look at the process. The outcome will sure. take care of itself. Yes, yes. Focus on the outcome and. You end up with a, a mess, yeah. but focus on the process, yeah. and things unfold smoothly. Yes. So it's process over outcome. Yes. 
I just I was remembering. So I've just been reading a book called The Listening Society, which is one of the most challenging books I have ever read. It's designed as a psychotechnology. It's designed to make your head fall apart. And but in a good way, fall apart as in break the the things that you thought you believed to be true in order to allow there to be space for other things. And it's so it's it's basically an outline for what he calls a meta modern politics. And this is politics where exactly as you say, you work out the process. You don't have parties that go, you know, this is what we will do. You have uh, movements that say this is how we will fit, work stuff out. And we don't know where that will necessarily take us because we haven't done that process in this particular instance before. But this is these are the fundamental principles of, you know, talking to each other and, and how we will resolve differences and all of those things. And if we have the right fundamental principles, then we will get to a place that everybody is happy with. Um, and towards the end, he has a phrase that um, has really stuck with me, which is, the new game of life looks a lot like this. She who has mastered the most perspectives by the time she dies, wins. That's great. I know. Yeah, That's I great. love it. And so, so really yes. that idea of letting go of our certainties just now and working out what are the core principles by which we want to fix stuff. You know, flourishing of people and planet. And then how do we build on that? What are our core principles? What are we taking? So what would be some of the core principles? What would you say? Well, well, that everything is aimed towards flourishing of people and planet. That's That would be my baseline one. So partly, here's a, a minor anecdote, which I hope I haven't told before. And if I have, feel free to cut it out of the audio. Okay. So, But somebody will it will be hearing it for the first time. And repetition is good. It's Yeah, it's definitely not new for some of my accidental God students. I apologize in advance, guys. So back to three years ago, I did a master's in sustainable economics and we had to do a term paper each term. And the first term we had been introduced to Buddhist economics and the uh, gross national happiness index of Bhutan and something that was sort of floated to us as shamanic economics because I was in the class and I don't think they'd have done it otherwise, where somewhere in South America, I think it was Ecuador, they wanted to build a dam across a river. And and the the lecturer who presented this was very pleased because instead of just building the dam, they went and created a ceremony to placate the spirit of the river before they built it the dam built the dam. And I was it, of all the things about economics that left me incandescently angry, that was top of the list. I was just sitting there with steam pouring out of my ears. Because I was going, no, 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 that's that's not shamanic economics. Shamanic economics is when you go to the spirit of the river and go, we have a problem. How can you help us fix it? Or how can you help us reframe it in a way that perhaps it's not the problem that we think it is? So I thought, okay, for my term paper, I am going to write an outline of how shamanic economics actually works because it's not what you think it is. So I did I did dreams, I did journeys, and I did what I would call medicine walks where I, I go and walk somewhere in the Shropshire Hills, which is where I'm not going to meet somebody, which is really easy around here, even <laughs> before lockdown. And I walk in a way where I invite my main guides, so, so the horned god who is both stag and man, and a very, very, very 10,000 generations back ancestor to walk with me so so that 
if I get it right, if I balance on the knife edge of the moment, if I can be absolutely fully present and I invite both in, I get to a point where they are seeing through my eyes, hearing through my ears, and I am seeing them seeing through my eyes and hearing through my ears and sensing through, sorry, all of my senses. And that's when the boundaries between the worlds dissolve and I can actually begin to connect to the web of life. So I was doing this for the the last day. I think I had two days before handing in. And and I was holding as my focus, you know, what is a shamanic economics? Because I don't really think I've got there. And I turned a bend in this path that winds along the side of a, a mountain, a little hill actually. And and there was my main guide standing in front of me going, you're asking the wrong question. Yeah. I like, oh really? I, I thought this was quite a cool question actually um yes. and and also i've i've done a lot of work for this what what question should i actually be asking and he said you need to know what you're here for you need to know what humanity is for because the economics can only follow the reason that you're here oh that's that's yeah actually you're right of course um Yes, and I didn't. Yes. And I realized that what, and, and then I went back and looked at Kate Rayworth, who's an amazing economist, who's who's created, she's written a book called Donut Economics. And if anybody's really got nothing to do with their time <laughs> next few weeks, <laughs> totally recommend that you read that because she, it's a book for everybody, not just economists. And it's looking at how the models of our current economy arose and the social, political and emotional circumstances that gave rise to them. So, you know, Adam Smith sitting at home writing the kind of foundational books of our current economic system, living at home with his mother, who is doing you know everything for him, cooking his meals, doing his washing, keeping his bed made, and he does not notice the work of women in his economics at all. Because, because why would you? That's what your mother's there for. So you know, there's a, there's a whole there's whole social political stuff that's been layered on how we get to where we are. And Kate says, at the moment we have an economic system that has to grow whether or not people and the planet flourish. And what we need is an economic system where people and the planet flourish whether or not the economy grows. Yes. And and I think that's absolutely fundamental. I still think we need to work out what we're here for. And at the moment, my answer to that, because I have spent the last three years working on it, I realized after that I went and listened to a lot of other people and I listened to Yuval Noah Harari and Sam Harris and, and various other quite big name philosophers going, you know, the problem is we don't quite know what we're here for. And until we answer that, we won't be able to move forward. So I thought, okay, I'm really late to this particular party, but at least now I shall give it my full attention. And so my answer is, I think we're here to choose conscious evolution. And I think we are getting a huge amount of help to do this. And harsh though this help is, my experience of the help that is given, whatever you think gives it, whether it's your shamanic guides or the gods or the universe or the all that is, the you will get a nudge first. So I, I used to say the gods will whisper and then they will speak and then they will shout. And if they get to the point where they're shouting at you, you're actually going to wish you'd listened when they were talking more quietly because it's yes. generally speaking not very comfortable by then. And this to me, this is this is bordering on a shout. 
Yes, um, definitely. And we really need to pay attention. But it's also if, if this is if this is not a shout, I don't want to know what is. No, no, quite yeah. exactly, exactly. So, so I would say antibiotic resistance would be the next yeah. level up. But we'd really like not to get there, please, because you know then all the actual ordinary stuff like catching your finger on a rusty nail or childbirth or falling off your horse and breaking your leg become probably fatal, like they were you know, 300 years ago. So yes. um, let's not do that one. But but for all that this is difficult and people are suffering and this is very unpleasant, nevertheless, I think we are both being given a wake up call and a means by which to change. Yes. And so, so the answer to your question of what would be the fundamental. So the fundamental principle is does everything that we do from here on in aim towards the flourishing of humanity and the planet? And then we would have to look at what does flourishing mean, because I strongly suspect it's different for someone in an indigenous tribe in the Amazon rainforest to somebody in the centre of Rio de Janeiro who earns their living sweeping floors, to somebody in California in Silicon Valley, to somebody you know, at the top of Greenland, who's looking at the ice melting and watching their life fall apart. So we yes. would have a lot of conversations to have, but it, we need to start having those. What does flourishing mean? And if the person in Silicon Valley believes flourishing means they have six private jets and can own 17 mansions and make life hell for every single person who works for them, maybe they don't necessarily get that level of flourishing while everyone who works for them is is in a particular kind of hell. And yes, I am talking at one individual at this point. And he's very unlikely to listen to this podcast, yes. so we're okay. But you know, I think that it would be it would change the nature of our culture overnight and completely if we took that on board. And a, a friend said something at a recent conference that we held, which was we need to get to a point where if you want to live unsustainably, you have to opt out of a sustainable system. Whereas at the moment, if you want to live sustainably, you have to opt out of a very unsustainable system. It's really hard to live sustainably in our current culture. Yes, it and is. And it shouldn't be. It is. So we need to shift the culture so that sustainable living is arising in every moment. And I and I think that as we rediscover what makes us happy, as opposed to what gives us pleasure, I, I really want to talk about that. Okay, let's let's have a quick look at that. Unpick that one because I'm reading. A, I, okay. I did a yes. podcast interview with a really interesting man called Rob Hopkins, who started the Transition Town movement in the UK. He, he's a co-founder of that, but but he was the big mover in the beginning, and he wrote a book just after. I left college called From What Is to What If, and it's a book about the imagination. And he says that the modern capitalist system is a disimagination machine. It's it's designed, or at least its effect is to crush our imaginations and to reduce human flourishing. And And so what if we were able to change that and how can we best change that? And at the end of the conversation, I asked him what book he would recommend people read. And he recommended something called The Hacking of the American Mind by Robert Lustig. 
And so I went and got it because I'm a good little girl. And Lustig is, <laughs> um, he's a doctor. He's, a, he's medically trained. And then he went off and did, I think, 16 years in a neuroscience lab. And now he's an endocrinologist. And he says it's it's the hardest and the most likely to burn out. That was obviously he wrote that before coronavirus of any medical subspecialty, because we live in a culture now where everyone's endocrine systems are under assault by he doesn't call it neoliberal capitalism, but but that's effectively what he means, that the shift from human flourishing equating to contentment and happiness to our perception that what we want is continual hits of pleasure is what's destroying us. And I had never really thought about these two as distinct, but he's very clear that pleasure is transient. It's driven by dopamine pathways, reward-based pathways, which are prone to downregulation. So your first hit of cocaine gives you a particular feeling and it is not physiologically possible ever to get that feeling again. But you're going to keep trying, taking right. more and more cocaine or more alcohol or more sugar. He says sugar is, is, is one of the biggest, partly because it creates the whole metabolic syndrome in people and our horses. Um, and And so most of the things that we consider to be signals of success are driven by pleasure seeking. So we want more money so we can buy more stuff or we can buy more expensive porn or we can get the second jet because the first one just didn't quite hit the button properly or we can buy a bigger car or we can have more alcohol or we can buy more expensive food which tends to have more fat and more sugar in it. Or we can buy lots and lots of very cheap processed food that is pretty much only fat and sugar. Actually, it's not so bad on fat. It's, or it's we the can empty just buy curve. stuff to have so we can open a box. Yeah, and then we put it in storage yeah. and go and buy another bit. Right. Yes, because we didn't really want it anyway, yes. but we got to open a box. And and we got that tiny dopamine hit, but it wasn't quite what we wanted. And anyway, our dopamine regulators are down-regulating, so we need a bigger box next time, or we need yes. more boxes. More boxes. And instead, we could be cultivating our happiness contentment networks, which are serotonin mediated, much more diffuse within our brains, um, very much more linked to the ventral vagal pathway rather than the dorsal vagus and the and the sympathetic and the polyvagal system. So we're looking at much less cortisol release as we do it. And and contentment, the serotonin based affects can last for life, whereas by definition, this the dopamine doesn't. So if, and he said, you know, it's only in the last, it's since the Second World War that the combination of turning us into consumers, discovering the race to the bottom of the brainstem that is the constant triggering of our dopamine networks, but, you know, more Facebook likes or getting onto Twitter and having a really good flame war with the opposing political side, all of these trigger dopamine. So getting binge, binge watching Netflix, all of the stuff that we're doing to try and make ourselves feel good and failing, but because it's driven by the need for the dopamine fix, we don't recognize that it's failing. We just keep going for the fix. And it's not how we have been. It is to an extent how we're 
hardwired, but we can choose to step off it. And imagine if the world discovered that talking to their 70-year-old neighbor that they didn't even know existed, spending time with their kids, homeschooling rather than pushing them through a system that is, first of all, crushing their imaginations, and second, leaving them so stressed they're getting ulcers at the age of five. Maybe we don't need to be doing this anymore. That would be so cool. Yeah, having sing-alongs with your neighbors yeah. from each each neighbor and staying in mm, their driveway, mm. that kind of thing. Yeah, I just yes, it's yeah. a these things that we've never done before. Yeah, I, I saw a brilliant video on Twitter just before we came on because I still do Twitter of of a a woman ambulance driver, a young woman. She steps out of her front door, and her entire street are out there to applaud her as she goes off to do her work. Wow. And she was weeping by the time she got in her car. And I thought, can you imagine the communities? They've never done that before. Oh, but it's a wow. thing now. And 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 we're discovering the important people are not the hedge fund managers and people who you know sell us a third lot of insurance we didn't need. They're the people who drive the ambulances and the people who stock the shelves. And, and if we ever get them, the people who harvest the food out of our Yes, our yes. And so, that's what we really want to shift the focus to and celebrate yeah because the more we focus on politicians and all of that we just admired in the in the muck yes yes so we need not to you're right yes but when we shift our focus to all the neighbors came out and applauded as the ambulance driver got in her car you know that's where we find the shift away from those dopamine hits and and to the things that will allow us to flourish. Yeah. Yeah. And we have such an opportunity now. Yes, it's impacting all of our lives. And yes, it is very scary. It's very scary in terms of the people you know who may get sick, the people you know who may die. It's very scary in terms of the unknown. Can I, can I, walk within six feet of you is it safe mm. you know i i have to go to the grocery store yeah. is that safe oh uh, what are the risks that i'm taking that i could be bringing something back to to people i care about mm. i don't know am i am i being careful enough i don't know and then the economic impacts mm. very frightening yeah. if you've just lost your income mm-hmm. If it's just fallen over a cliff. Yep. It's terrifying. That's, it's terrifying. <laughs> we speak from experience, you and me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the unknowns, because it's one thing when this started and they said, well, you know, it's two weeks, three weeks, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see where we are. And you think, okay, we can manage for the short term. It can manage through April, May, it'll start coming back. But now you look at it realistically and it's, you start to say, Okay, this is a long haul. And now for so many people, that stress becomes increasingly real. How are we going to manage? And so there, yes, it is very frightening. And the the cliff is steep that we could be falling off of. But it's also such an opportunity. Yeah. It's such an opportunity. And and I think because this is universal. So if, you know, when, I don't know, a steel plant closes, all the workers lose their jobs. And yes. everybody thinks, oh, that's not very nice. But nobody really does anything. They just assume they'll get other jobs. But everybody's income pretty much ceased a couple of weeks ago. 
or, or you know, if it didn't, you know, Amazon's didn't, obviously, and I'm assuming that on the back right. of this, Amazon will start having to pay proper taxes because it really can't shovel up all of the commerce in, in all of the world and not pay tax. But because it's so universal. Even if you still have your job, the ripple effects are still huge and it will start to impact yeah. throughout all layers of society. Yeah. It's hitting some people faster than others. If you were a waitress in a restaurant, a waiter in a West restaurant, you're out of luck right now. Mm. Yeah. Um, if you were working in um, at the airport, putting bags up on the baggage mm. claim, yep. uh, you're you're out of luck right now. Um, there there are lots of jobs that are just disappeared. Yeah, and it, and arts. You know, nobody's going to the theatre anymore. They can't. Nobody's making films right. anymore. Nobody's buying paintings. I've got a friend who, who's a picture framer, a lovely man. And he's, you know, of course, nobody's getting their pictures framed. You know, all of the things that are the very delicate balance that our economy was. You know, the, the Boeing 747 has landed, but now yes. we have the chance to turn it into a helicopter. And, and we don't know what it'll look like. I and mean, we were back in circles as we need to... We need coming out of this, and I don't know how we do it. There's, I've been on so many Zoom calls these last couple of weeks from groups saying, okay, this is our opportunity. But we're all, first of all, there's, there's too many small groups we need to all unite. And second, the people with their hands on the levers of power are also seeing it as an opportunity. I, I gather, I, I read an article about the the bill that's just been passed in your country. And basically this is, you know, it was some stupid number of pages that were already there. Somebody went, oh, there's a crisis. Look, we have a document for a crisis. Here you go. Um, this is what we'd like to do, isn't it, chaps? And and pretty much they got it through. And I, we don't know what the implications of that are going to be, but it's probably wasn't designed with flourishing of people and planet in mind. I suspect not. But we are also discovering that both the good and the bad of government, that having a nationalised health service is a jolly good idea, particularly if you can actually get it some ventilators. As over here, we're discovering that, that that actually what you want is not to be paying money for water and sewage to private companies. There's, there's, that there are things that that we can do collectively yes. with our public ownership, that this is what my taxes are for, yes. actually, is to make sure everybody has got the basic services that they need. And I remember we discussed this with Joe Lang you know, an aeon yes, ago. Yes, the base income everything. and the base yeah. services. Yeah, I, I still yes. think universal basic services is... is, is this, and, and he said, what happens if I want to, to go on a road trip across the country? I think, but you're still going on roads which are built by... The government. You do not want to yes. be going from private toll road to private toll road, being held up by the equivalent of Amazon corporate hi highwaymen at every bridge. You know, it's. But we're also going to be having an experiment in universal basic income. Yes. Uh, ish. Basic Are they? Income. Are we? Are you going to have that, or is it? Well, there, there's in that bill. Yes, there's a. I think it was twelve hundred dollars. It's not. It's right. a one time. Okay. It's not a recurring. Okay. But they are, and yet. then, yeah. yet. So depending upon how long this goes on. And so people may be discovering that what Andrew Yang was advocating for is actually starting to look pretty good. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? So tell me, 
before we reach a point where we have to stop. Because when we first started these podcasts, Accidental Gods was not yet up and running. And now it is. And I think we should revisit for a few minutes what you are doing with Accidental Gods, because not everybody really is familiar with what you're doing. And it's important. Okay, thank you. So Accidental Gods is a a project designed to help facilitate conscious evolution on the premise that every species evolves. Evolution happens in any species under moments of intense pressure. And even before the coronavirus, I thought we were under extreme <laughs> pressure. Now I know. Yes. Um, just a tiny bit for the people who really don't know, and I apologize to the people who heard this before, but it arose out of my own shamanic practice. I sit with the fire every solstice and the winter solstice of 2018. I sat with the fire feeling quite happy because I'd got my shamanic students, the first cohort had gone all the way around the wheel. It had taken 14 years and I was very proud. But of the many hundreds who started, nine had finally made the circuit. So I sit down with the fire thinking, gosh, I'm a clever person. Um, And essentially the fire said, nine people every 14 years is not going to cut it. You know that, don't you? And which totally took the wind out of my sails. Um, And then I was shown a vision of me teaching or standing on a stage in America in front of a very large number of people, which was confusing because I never go to the States anymore because I don't want to fly because flying involves huge carbon outlay. And and anyway, I I don't really like traveling. So the carbon outlay is a kind of a good excuse. So that was a bit confusing. And the second image that I was shown, which is the one that's really driving me now, was of the earth as seen from space, that amazing blue pearl floating in the blackness of space. And around it, like a second skin, was a web of light that at that point, because it was night, it was moonlight. But I've seen it again in daytime and it's sunlight. So this web of brilliant light, very, very hyper complex web of many, many, many interlocking strands. And at every point where strands met, one crossed over another or a dozen crossed over one, was a node of consciousness. And some of those nodes of consciousness were people, humans, and some of them absolutely weren't. They were a tree or a mountain or a rock or a mycelial network or or a whale or a, a blade of grass. Anything that could be conscious is part of this web of consciousness. So so the instruction that I gathered was I needed to start teaching at scale. And I had no idea what I was teaching. And most of last year was spent in in really quite deep moments of meditation or shamanic journeying or going for my medicine walks, holding the question, what can I safely teach that is useful. What is it that you want me to teach if you want me to teach at scale? And over the process of the year, what arose was very clearly when it finally arose that conscious evolution is not my concept. It's there's large corners of the internet devoted to the fact that the next evolutionary step can be and needs to be one of consciousness. We don't have time, frankly, to go through the slow generation by generation iterations of of a little bit of DNA. My legs are a bit longer so I can run a bit faster, therefore I can catch bunnies easier. It's not going to happen. 
But we are at the point where our understanding of neuroscience, particularly neuroplasticity, our understanding of our ability to shape our own internal realities, to change fundamentally the ways that we think and the ways that we feel and the ways that we behave by choice and allied to a real deepening in our understanding of of what contemplative practice really is. There's been a lot of really interesting work on insight meditation, taking taking the Buddhist teachings that are so profound and so relevant to now and changing them or shifting them or evolving them possibly to to be more relevant for this moment and to take on board that which we know. But but given that everything that I was able to read about conscious evolution was that we just we just need to do this kind of combination of neuroscience and meditation a bit more, or we need to philosophize a bit more deeply, or we need to implant a nanochip in our brains because that's the next obvious step. And and I don't believe any of those, particularly not the last one. And what I got to was that I was really exploring this this web of consciousness that humanity as far as we know is a critical part of the evolving consciousness of this planet and it may be of the entire cosmos that certainly James Lovelock who proposed the Gaia hypothesis thinks that statistically speaking this may be the only arising of consciousness anywhere ever which is kind of scary when we look at how close we are to rendering ourselves extinct however I believe that the consciousness is not just us, but we are a fundamental and integral part of it. And if that's the case, then there is clearly a role that we have to play. And so my question has been, what is that role and how do we get there? And what I have at the moment, and and I, you know, most of my days are spent working with this and exploring it, is how do we show up? We're, we're on the Ken Wilber um, quadrant of wake up, grow up, clean up, show up. How do we do this? How do we take our place in these nodes of consciousness in a way that is everything that is our birthright, everything that we are here for, that is being the best that we can be and then collectively being something better. And what I get to is that we need to learn how to do that and we need to learn how to connect to the rest of the web of life without thinking that we can fix it all. That's not what we're here for. We are here to be the connecting points. We are here to be able to stand in in clarity, in connection, in coherence, in compassion, in the, the absolute courage that comes from knowing that I am the right person in the right place at the right time and I am utterly heart open and utterly connected to everything else. And I don't have an imposed belief system trying to tell everything else what to do. I've taken on board that fluidity of she who has mastered the most perspectives by the time she dies wins. And in fact, the only way to do that is to let go of everything that I believe to be true and hold my sense of self in the present, open, connected, 
and then say, what do you want of me? And be fluid enough and confident enough to act in the moment and do that. And and my absolute belief is that if we can find a critical mass of people who can do this, then conscious evolution is a possibility and in fact a probability. And so then the only question is, how do we do this? And accidental gods, this is the very long answer. I'm sure I'll get a shorter (laughs) one eventually. Accidental gods is my best attempt at helping people go through the steps that ordinary people, you know, you're holding down the job at Amazon or you're a mother with three kids under the age of 10, all at home just now, or whatever you're doing, you can do this because it can't just be people like me who I'm enormously privileged. I work from home. I can pretty much devote my life to spiritual practice and and nobody really cares. But it's got to be the people who listen to this podcast and their colleagues and their friends and their family. We need ordinary people to be able to do this, to be able to make the connections to the living world, to everything, to the rocks, to the trees, to the water in the rivers, to whatever, and do the inner work to let go of the ego and the projections and the judgment, and then be able to step up at a time when it's necessary. And I have to say, when I I was pushing last year to get us launched by the winter solstice of of 2019. So, and, and my partner who does it with me kept going, we're not ready. We're not going to be ready. Why don't we just leave it to the spring? And I, no, we absolutely have to get it done by the solstice. And we'd have these bizarre conversations. She'd be going, but why? I, I don't know, but we just do. And and the really wonderful thing is she listens to me because, you know, we got to the equinox, which is when, you know, our next possible launch date because because we live on that calendar and, and the world had fallen apart. And and we needed, I think, those two and a half months of yes. of people in the program really engaging. We've got some really amazing people who kind of picked it up on day one and, and ran with it or, or have come on board since. And giving feedback and, and modifying because I asked really did ask too much of people too soon with the early work. So we've modified it and made it more straightforward. And we're producing content all the time. At some point we will run out of money, but we haven't yet. Um, <laughs> And so that we can do this because, because frankly, for me, this is what we're here for now. I, I, I may change that. You know, this is my truth for today. My truth for tomorrow may be different. But at the moment, I think what we're here for is to consciously choose to evolve, to be different. And we don't need to know where that takes us. Like you said, the, the end result is not the point. The process is the point. So I've tried to break the process down into chunk it down into tiny, tiny, tiny behaviors that anyone can do so that when we build those behaviors together, we get a meta behavior that is transformational. There we go. Thank you for the space to say that. Yes, absolutely. And tying it back to everything we've talked about today, so many of us now have the time, the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Because we are we are having to stay home. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're we're not allowed to go out yep. to work. We're we're having to stay home. We're even going to see our horses. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. So yeah. so what yeah. a great opportunity and and our habit patterns have been blown apart. Yes, yes, completely yes. blown apart. Yeah. So we have that opportunity to reshape completely new. Yep. 
habit patterns that serve us better, that allow us to thrive. Yes. And we can do it much more deliberately in this space that has opened up for us because we've been told we have to stay put. Yeah, definitely. And and people are looking for things to do. Uh, but people are also broke. And, and we set up, we initially... When we gave it away for free, we discovered if people didn't have an investment, they just did not engage. People didn't even open, you know, come in once. So we had set a membership fee and that's still there. But it's it's one pound for two weeks to just come in and have a look around. And then basically what we have now is a de facto sliding scale. And if And if people want to come in for free, they just email me. There are many links on the website and we can make that happen because the point now is that we... We thought we had maybe five or six years and we had two and a half months to get ready. Yes. So so yes. now is the time. And if people want to do this, please don't let money be the bar because that's that so isn't. That's not the point. The point is come and do the stuff. Come and have fun because the point it should be fun. And and let's see where we can get to. Imagine if we were to make the transition that was the equivalent of going from being a caterpillar to a butterfly. Because that's what phase shift is. That's what happens when you get emergence from complex systems. And we don't know what a butterfly of humanity looks like. But if humanity now is the caterpillar, the butterfly, I think, would be predicated on human and planetary flourishing. I think it couldn't not be. If we're actually a part of the living web of life and have taken our places, in, in pride and decency and wonder at who we are, then whatever emerges has got to be regenerative and sustainable yes. and flourishing. Yes. And that's what we're aiming for in this space of time that has opened up mm. for us because yeah. of the coronavirus. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think That's so. certainly what I'm aiming for. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. And yeah. who knows when all of the people are coming out into their driveway to wish the ambulance driver well. And if we can create that, then that can grow into other things as well. The opportunities yeah. are definitely there. Yeah. So yes. good place to, I think, bring this to a close. That's a good thought to end on. So to get to Accidental Gods, it's it's accidentalgods.life. That's it. Yep, exactly. Accidentalgods.life. And if you want to hear it, there's a podcast called Accidental Gods. If podcasts are your thing, which they might be if you're listening to this, <laughs> then, then there is also a podcast. But yeah, everything's on accidentalgods.life. Because, hey, dot .life exists as a suffix. Who knew? Who knew? Um, Who yeah. knew? Yep. And this is yet another way in which horse people can make a difference. Yes. 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 And next time, I would really like to explore the pleasure-happiness dichotomy with our horses because it, it lit up big light bulbs for me about the people that I see who click or train who are, I think, targeting only the dopamine pathways end up with very frustrated horses. And the people who are enabling the serotonin, happiness-contentment pathways, as well as the dopamine, because we, we do need dopamine, mm. have calm, happy, content horses. Wow. So if that isn't a teaser, That's I don't know one. what it yes. is. 
<laughs> that is the next one. See, I've learned yes. from Equiosity. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, we'll say goodbye right, for now and leave yes, people with that you. teaser. This was a longer than usual podcast, but with so many of us having to stay home, I thought you might appreciate being able to listen to our conversation all in one go. For those of you who have horses at home, if you'd like to learn more about clicker training, do check out my website, blog, and online course. Go to theclickercenter.com. That will give you lots to explore. So stay well, and remember, especially in times like this, it's not just horse people who can make a difference. We all can. <laughs>